I'm Adam Kaiser. And I'm Jordan Fees. With us is Catherine Rosano, Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer at Panasonic Avionics Corporation. Panasonic Avionics designs, engineers, manufactures, sells, and installs customized in-flight entertainment solutions to airlines worldwide. I know they've absolutely made longer flights better for me, and I personally cannot wait to get back to traveling. But before we get into our conversation, let's cover some of the trending topics impacting compliance practitioners today. Adam, what's happening in the world of compliance? Well, interesting report this week out from Goodwin, which is a global law firm, talking about FCPA enforcement during the great banner year of 2020. And they were looking at good stuff, key trends, enforcement actions, the cases, and so forth. Interestingly enough, which is not really surprising, but there was an overall decline in FCPA enforcement actions you know, compared to 19, but higher gross fines. So less business, but more value per business, so to speak. So the government is uh, focusing their efforts and maybe this is a trend, maybe it's not, could also be somewhat indicative of all that went on you know, with the pandemic and so forth. Also, the report pointed that the increase in whistleblower cases, the SEC might mean that 2021 could be a higher caseload year. So folks are either feeling it or might be feeling it soon. I mean, like you said, I think this totally just shows the impact that the pandemic had on enforcement last year and the continued impact it's going to have on enforcement this year, which could mean a, a surge of, of those cases that, that were previously overlooked. But yeah, it seems like they really focus their efforts on you know, some of the the biggest cases. And, you know, also in that report, Goodwin said that the cross-border enforcement soared. So that's, you know, another trend we might want to keep our eyes on as um, we're going into 2021 with the Biden administration focusing on international cooperation. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, TBD with, you know, the current administration. They're obviously uh, a little busy right now working on some other things, but uh, I'm sure there will be some some things to come, some indicators of kind of where things are headed, you know, from an enforcement uh, standpoint and all that. So it should be interesting to see what plays out. So let me ask you this, Adam. How should compliance teams handle working with a monitor due to FCPA violations? Uh, I know, Jordan, you know I'm not an expert, but that's exactly what we're going to hear about today on Risky Business with Catherine Rosano. We don't think that most kids grow up dreaming of, of mitigating organizational risk. How did you get into... Uh, get into compliance yourself? You know, I, I did not dream of, of mitigating organizational risk when, when I was a child, although my father was a prosecutor and then later a defense attorney. So I actually always had aspirations of going to law school, but wanting to do exactly what he did, which was uh, kind of securities enforcement type work. And um, in my first law firm job, that's what I was doing. And I happened to be sitting in the office as all good young associates do on a Saturday afternoon um, working on a securities matter when a partner walked into my office and said, I need you to join a call with me right now. I have an incoming matter related to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And that afternoon is what really launched my career into the foray of, of compliance. It was a huge matter for a defense contractor that is you know, a pretty well-known case. And as I was working on this matter with her and some others, I was like, wow, I really like this. This is really fun. It's interesting. And just getting to know some of the folks inside of the organization that were doing the compliance work, right? Kind of the more proactive work really, really appealed to me. And I ended up actually laterally with that partner to another law firm where 
I had the great pleasure of working alongside former DOJ officials and AUSAs and working on really high profile client matters. And because I didn't have the prosecutorial background, I really became what it was dubbed uh, the queen of compliance, because that's really where my passion was. And that's where I excelled. So on many of these investigations, I got tagged up with these clients to then kind of rebuild and rethink some of their compliance programs post-investigation. Most people on a Saturday afternoon are, are probably laying on the couch relaxing. In your case, you were forging a new career. So that's, that's a pretty cool uh, way to get into it. Not by choice. Let's just, you know, like I said, all good young associates are at the office on a Saturday, right? Or at least they were in the late 90s, early 2000s. Kind of follow up to that. So we like to ask for what was an oh shit moment? And there's two ways to look at it, right? It could be something very, very negative, scary that happened that, you know, provided you with great insight, maybe made you make a pivot or, you know, change your view on things. Or there's my personal favorite oh shit moment, which is when you know, it gets really dark except for the spotlight on you and the music plays around you and you have this sort of either an epiphany or just like a really insightful experience that helps to kind of define your career. It could be personal. You can't believe it just happened or something like that. So anything that comes to mind that makes you think, oh shit, either way. Wow. I've had so many oh shit moments, but I think in terms of an epiphany, you know, I had been doing compliance work for you know, probably the better part of 10 years. And I was in-house and really decided that I wanted to take a turn in my career. I wanted to do something different. So really was starting to be groomed to be more of a general counsel and was, you know, really not working within my core expertise anymore and was taking on all different kinds of work in order to kind of, like I said, be groomed for a general counsel position. And I I kind of realized in a very deeply emotional moment that I didn't feel fulfilled and I I really needed to feed my passion and get back to my, you know, true love of compliance, which was kind of a rough decision um, because I had dedicated about three, four years in in a leadership development program and a grooming program to, to ascend to a GC position. But I really just didn't enjoy what I was doing at that time and in the organization that I was in. And it just so happens that the next day, after I had this you know, deeply emotional moment, a close friend and colleague called and said, you know, would you be interested in a chief compliance officer role in California with a company that just settled with the Department of Justice on FCPA violations? And I said, yeah, of course, I'd be interested. And that's essentially how I got here today. What is one of the proudest moments of your career in compliance? So, so I think it's actually two. And it, the first one will kind of go back to my entry into the compliance world, which was, um, and this is all public, but representing Lockheed Martin at the time on um, a potential acquisition of the Titan Corporation. That was the deal that kind of got me into this world. And it was an extremely proud moment, I think, for me, because this partner who really didn't know me from Adam, Adam, really entrusted me with a lot of just really senior work and really let me shine and make mistakes. And um, in the course of it, we we were like, this is really not, we're not finding anything. And we think this is fine. Like, you know, and then there was that oh shit moment where we identified a real problem and were able to 
get the company out of the deal. They were able to successfully exit the SPA without any, you know, real financial consequence, um, which Titan Corporation went on to a huge government investigation. I think the company that ultimately bought them was not going to pay nearly as much as Lockheed was looking to pay for them at the time. So that was a huge, huge accomplishment. And then, of course, I mean, you know, at Panasonic Avionics, it's also public. We've been under a monitorship for violations of the Foreign Practices Act, and we are coming to the end of that monitorship. And I think there is nothing prouder in my career at the moment than um, working with the executive team, working with the company and with, you know, the team that we pulled together in the Office of Ethics and Compliance to really bring this to fruition. I, I am I'm like a real proud mama bear at the moment. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you really, you know, helped Lockheed Martin dodge a bullet. And then going on to the monitorship, I mean, obviously it's no small undertaking. Do you have any, you know, piece of advice or thoughts on people who might find their themselves in a similar position? Well, I would not wish it upon my worst enemy, although I did volunteer <laughs> to take this role. One piece of advice I would give folks who are listening are either working with a monitor now or potentially see that down the tunnel is establish a, a very strong, collaborative, cooperative working relationship with your monitor right out of the gate. Set the right tone. It is not meant to be an adversarial relationship. It is absolutely meant to be a partnership. They are there to help. They are there to, to guide. And I think that is frankly one of the reasons why you know our team has been so successful is that we were able to work with with our monitor and and that team so so well. And we really did um, appreciate the advice that they gave us through the various reports and things like that. It was uh, you know a lot of work, but Good work. Good work. Right. Well, it sounds like it, it really is all about perspective there. If you, you know, decide, okay, we can, if we partner and work together, we can get a lot, a lot more accomplished. Well, exactly. And it's not, and I'm not, to, it's not to say that um, there aren't battles to be fought, you know, that are worthy to be fought. Um, it's, it, it's certainly not suggesting to the audience that you should, you should bend over in any, any shape or form, but um, you can still have a collaborative partnership with the monitor and zealously, you know, advocate and represent your, your, your company. So you've been in the aerospace industry now for, I think, a little over 10 years. So is there anything you, know, you can tell us about compliance within that industry? Are there any unique hurdles that you've come across? People talk about all highly regulated spaces and you think immediately, you know, pharmaceuticals and the financial services industry, but the, the aerospace sector, you know, whether you're in the commercial side or the defense side is highly regulated, if, if not more than some of those other industries. And there is an, an immense amount of government interaction, not just with the United States government, but let's remember when you're in this industry, you're talking about airplanes that are flying all over the world. So essentially, you're doing business in every single country and jurisdiction on the globe from takeoff to touchdown and including when the airplanes enter into different airspace and the kinds of transactions that could occur on the airplane from financial transactions to connectivity to what whatever retail market marketplace type stuff. So I think that's that's something that I didn't probably appreciate until I really started working in the company. I, I had represented 
aerospace clients while I was in private practice. But when you really get into the thick of it, it, it's amazing how many different pieces of U.S. regulations, other governments that um, really need to be considered from really from A to Z. Absolutely. I mean, it feels like the general public doesn't even realize or think about how regulated of an industry this is. And it feels like it's, it's very complex, lots of different pieces that you have to take into account. From every, from every little piece of equipment on the airplane that needs to be certified, not just by the FAA here in the United States, but if the plane's going to be certified by another aviation authority, it needs to be certified by, by them. It's just, it's, it's immense. So during your time at Panasonic Avionics, you've, you know, kind of rehabilitated the compliance program. So can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Challenging. (laughs) In a single word. (laughs) (laughs) In a single word, challenging. You know, it's like going from zero to a hundred in a really short period of time. This really has been a soup to nuts process that was required. They had a program, but it was it was clearly a program that needed to be re- rehabilitated, but it really did need to be rehabilitated from, from the ground up. However, I think that it, it was possible, I mentioned before the executive leadership, I mean, the incredible support from the business leaders at Panasonic Avionics, but also all the way up to the very top of the corporation in Japan, I think was critical to being able to do this in, in, you know, a very short period of time and being able to ramp up resources and really get people motivated and focused around this. I mean, this was this, this monitorship and rehabilitating the program, not just at the avionics business unit, but within Panasonic has been an absolute priority all the way up to the very, very top, which, you know, is a nice thing to have when you're coming in and trying to tackle a behemoth like this. Absolutely. I mean, I think you touched on something really interesting there, which is, you know, this executive level buy-in to compliance, which I've heard is is not always the easiest and there's definitely varying levels there. So it's great that this seems like the, the whole company was really bought in and ready to make changes. So we would be remiss not to discuss the pandemic. So how has the pandemic affected your program? And I guess, how do you see it impacting the the industry at large? COVID has been probably the single biggest impact to the aviation industry in the history of aviation. And and I don't say that in in a cynical way at all. I mean, the impact on the business, the industry is nothing short of a chaotic disaster, in my opinion. And it's going to take a while to to kind of get back to even. Although I, I do think that recovery will certainly take hold at some point, but it is definitely an uphill battle, not just obviously for kind of aviation contractors like we are, but for the airlines and for the folks who um, are on the aircraft. I mean, the suppliers, the contractors, I mean, there's a huge industry within aviation that's not just, you know, the airplanes and, and the cabin crews, but just a whole industry out there that has been severely affected with reduced workforces and furloughs. So I think the, the impact there is, is obvious. I mean, the impact from COVID to the program implementation, certainly, of course, we've had impacts, but, you know, as a team, we really grabbed it as an opportunity, I think, to pivot some of our strategies and, you know, frankly, think 
we were able to demonstrate to the company our ability to be flexible in a time of crisis rather than um, saying, too bad, so sad, we're under a monitorship, we have to do it this way. And I, I think that in and of itself has also borne a lot of fruit and credibility for the mission. Wondering, I mean, obviously the the, the playbook on the pandemic was never written and I don't think ever will be, and hopefully never has to be again, because it's just been such a, a crazy world. But, you know, I wonder, you know, going back a little bit before you talked about sort of coming in in this, in this rehabilitation role, is that, is that something you want to do again? Like sort of be like Gordon Ramsay going from kitchen to kitchen, trying to clean up what's going on. Is that, is that something that was appealing? And it sounds like it was, but like, would, would doing that again be something that you'd maybe want to do? Or would you rather just maybe have a, something a little bit less, stomach churning to, to work on. <laughs> Look, I'm always up for a good, a good chaotic challenge. I think building a compliance program is, is there are foundational pillars to it, but it is certainly different in every company. It is certainly different in every industry and you kind of have to see where the business takes you and, and what your risk profile is. So yeah, I mean, sure. I think if, uh, if the opportunity were to arise, I, I would, I would definitely be interested. I, in fact, I have a team member, actually I have two, I'm sorry, I have two team members who are, are part of my group that came after completing monitorships in the oil and gas industry. And I did, it. you did ask them like, so you really want to do this again? And they were like, yeah, sure. Why not? It's a completely different industry, completely different business and risk profile. So let's, let's have at it. So kind of as you're moving away from, you know, you know, the monitorship and so forth, are there major kind of new projects, initiatives, things that you're you're starting to work on, you are working on that you're, you're, you're really excited about that you, you want to dig in a little bit and kind of share with us about kind of the next phase? Yeah. And, and, and we're starting to kind of think about that, right? I mean, we have to reinvent ourselves a little bit as, as we, you know, wind down the monitorship, but we'd all agree that, that data is absolutely the future and harnessing that power of data in order to be more proactive and, and prioritize particularly at a time and in an industry with reduced resources, both in funding and in headcount. Data and data analytics, compliance dashboard, those have all been strategies that we have developed and implemented and executed during the course of the monitorship. We have so many ideas and I think high hopes for continuing to pull the thread on our ability to, to use data and data analytics to make that risk profile whole a little bit smaller so we can prioritize better and, and hit the issues hard that really matter. But some of that we did have to put aside as a nice to have during the pandemic because of cost. But I certainly see that as a continuous improvement and something that we will continue to advocate and implement for in the future. I mentioned this in a, in a meeting the other day and with DOJ's guidance that came out uh, last summer, they talked a lot about data for years and it was in a way that sounded like a nice to have. I think the guidance this past summer made it clear that it's a must have now in some shape or form. It's a must have. We've had some conversations previously on the podcast about data and just, you know, there's, there's no more kind of very clear trend and need for the future than that. So that's, that's a good place to be. Yeah. And I think what I'd, one thing I'd say about, you know, kind of the use of data, the power of data is there's no one way. There's no right way. 
I know there's a lot of, and Alan Gibson is a, is a dear, a dear friend and, and, and colleague and, you know, what he, he and his team have pulled off at Microsoft is nothing short of God's work. Matt Galvin at AB InBev. I mean, he is like the Zen master of, of all of this and their programs are extremely robust and very technologically sophisticated, but that's what works for their organization. And that's what their organizations need. It's not necessarily something that my organization needs or the listeners on this podcast need, but every chief compliance officer, every compliance team should be talking about access to data and how to use data in some shape or form in their program. It may not look like Microsoft or AB InBev, but everyone should be having that discussion at the moment. I've heard Matt talk about his program and some of the things they're doing. And I mean, it's sort of, I would start to get worried that it was, you know, it's his, his program is self-aware, like, you know, Skynet from Terminator 2. And at some point, like compliance is going to shoot first and it's going to get ugly. But no, I mean, it's amazing what, what they've done. But I mean, there's so many varying, so many different, like you said, so many varying levels to it. And the maturity level increases over as your program gets more complicated. So what do you think, you know, as we talk about your program, we talk about other programs and, and all that. I mean, do you think there's anything that kind of stands out as what compliance teams or what the industry as a whole are really doing right or what really may be doing wrong that you think needs needs correcting or needs to be embraced if it's something that they're, we're doing right? I don't really actually think about it in terms of right and wrong. You know, the one thing I worry about the compliance industry is the temptation to overcomply and the desire to fill all the holes and just total risk avoidance, right? That's just not possible in a fast-paced business world, you know, where customers are demanding and issues are not going to present themselves in a black and white or clear-cut way. And I think that is something that the compliance industry needs to just acknowledge because I, you know, you join a lot of these webinars and, and various benchmarking activities and I sometimes find like we're trying to identify the next big issue or it just happens to be an issue and everyone's kind of rallying around how to build compliance processes around it when it may not actually be an issue at the moment. That's that's kind of what I worry about sometimes is is the temptation to over overdo it a bit and not remember that we also are here to serve the business. The business exists to do whatever the business does, right? So our business puts in-flight entertainment on airplanes. That's why the business exists. We do not exist to comply, although we have done that for the past few years. <laughs> or a Pfizer, you know, they are in the business. They exist to, you know, provide good medicines to people and the vaccination for the pandemic. They do not exist to comply. It is part of their mission. And the compliance group, our mission is to help the business serve their mission in a way that is, you know, in compliance with laws and regulations and so on and so forth. I mean, I think this is just a really refreshing perspective and I think also just realistic, right? Like it's not realistic to say risks are going to be zero. It sounds like it's a, an, an act of prioritization, you know, where can we have the most impact and reduce risk and where are we going to say, okay, we're, we're aware of these risks that we're taking on. Absolutely. It's all about risk. So what piece of advice would you have for anyone that's interested in getting into compliance? Is there anything you, you wish you knew when you were earlier in your career? Yeah, actually, when I joined my prior organization from a law firm, 
it really took about a year or two to, to kind of get comfortable with being inside of the business world. Law firms obviously operate in completely different ways than companies. So I would say if someone's transitioning from a law firm to going in-house or going from law school to in-house, get to know all parts of the business, make time to develop personal relationships with the business, whether they are the leaders or they are working the shop floors. You need these individuals to talk to you about what's going on. They need to educate you about the business before you're going to be able to sufficiently guide them. And, and frankly, you're going to need their support. You're going to need them as cheerleaders. And I think as I've now kind of grown in, in this role between two, two global organizations, I've also found that a compliance organization really needs close connections with HR, IT, audit, finance, communications, and marketing. I mean, these are, are going to be other support functions that will be absolutely pivotal to your success. I think for those you know, who are interested in a compliance career, but aren't really sure, I would say don't let not having a law degree hold you back or lack of experience in compliance hold you back. It's, it's a really fun, creative and diverse area that lends itself well to bright, enthusiastic, energetic people who are willing to learn and roll up their sleeves. I tell my team often that you know, we are not rocket scientists and we are not curing cancer. We're all really smart. We're all really energetic. And as long as we can dig in and, and learn, we, we can support the business. Absolutely. We keep hearing, I feel like, a similar anecdote there, which is, you know, it's not – people got into compliance, I think, at different points in their career. And it, it seems like more often than not, it, it found them rather than they found it. So if you're thinking about compliance, it's it's more about taking the leap. And I mean, we hear people coming from different parts of the business and getting into compliance, obviously lawyers and people in the legal field. So I think it makes for that diverse workforce that you were, you were touching upon. So our, our final question for you today is what does compliance and ethics mean to you? So I got asked this question in an all hands meeting about uh, a little bit less than two years ago. And this gentleman stood up in an all hands meeting, a couple hundred people there. And he said to me, what is ethics and compliance? Where is that defined? Like what, what am I supposed to be thinking about when I think about ethics and compliance? And I said, okay, well, I'm just going to make it really easy because he was a young, a young gentleman. I said, do you live with your parents? He said, yes, I still live with my parents. I said, when you go home tonight and you tell your parents about your day, are you going to be proud to tell them about all the decisions that you made? Or are you going to think twice about telling them about the decisions that you made? And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, you know, I want to be, I want to tell them things that will make them proud. I said, that's what ethics and compliance is. Knowing that you're doing the right thing or that you're at least asking the right questions or being aware enough to ask a question, that's good enough for me. People call it the Wall Street Journal test when you're doing diligence or, you know, kind of getting more into the substantive pieces of, of what we do in a compliance department. But ultimately, that's what a board will consider in many cases is, do we want this on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, Washington Post, whatever? And even if it's legal, even if it's legal, and there's no reason why you can't engage in this conduct or transaction, you want your company 
to be seen in, in a positive light. You want to be sure that the community can connect in a way that understands the mission and is feels good about a credible reputation. And I think that decision-making and, and working in an ethical environment is, is the same. I mean, you want to be able to go home and tell your mom, dad, spouse, kids, dog, whatever, that you either had a good day or a hard day, but you don't regret anything. You don't regret making a decision that you knew was right in your heart. You may have pissed some people off, but you knew it was the right decision. Jordan, did you know that GAN Integrity now has its own e-commerce store, iHeartCompliance.com? Tell me more. So we put together a store of iHeart Compliance merchandise because we started a campaign a couple of years ago on Valentine's Day and asked people, why did you fall in love with compliance? And we got a great response to it. People tell us why they're in it, why they love it. And then we started giving out bugs of all things at trade shows and conferences, which are alien to us all now. So we thought, you know what? Let's launch it this Valentine's Day and let compliance teams have at it and, and grab merchandise that they want. And we're not uh, in the business of trying to make money on merchandise. So it's just up there for, you know, basically for cost. But, uh, you know, we uh, we want to spread a little love for compliance throughout the community. Yeah, I think, you know, it really is a destination for compliance professionals who are proud that they're in the compliance and ethics field and, and really love compliance and want, want to put that on the, a shirt, a mug, a notebook, and really tell the world how much they love compliance. Also a great gift or little incentive for compliance teams, although we can't be together in person right now. So what we want to do for listeners of the podcast, if you use promo code RISKY20, you'll get 20% off your entire order at iheartcompliance.com. And we can't wait to see what you order. That is a deal, people. So definitely embrace that. Do you have an oh shit moment that you'd like to share knowing that it will help others like you? Shoot us an email at riskybusiness at ganintegrity.com. We'd love to hear from you. 